0: I'm going to begin this sermon with a bit of a commercial. One of the very best things about living in Prince William County is our public library system. (laughs) I've extolled the virtues of our library system many a time, but truly, our library is fantastic. This summer, I've been engaging the summer reading program with my kids, and for myself, because, oh yeah, adult summer reading is a thing, and I'm crushing it. It's been fantastic. The summer reading was a collection of different challenges, things you needed to do over the summer with reading. Read under a tree. Read at the pool, which was great. And one of the challenges, kids go off and play, I'm gonna read. The library told me to, anyways. One of the challenges was to reread a favorite childhood book, which I thought was an awesome idea, to encourage adults to reread a book that they loved as a child or as a teen. Because when I have gone back, as I did this summer, and reread books that I loved when I was younger, what I find is the things I loved are still there, and there's a new layer of meaning for me in my fresh encounter with a beloved story. I think we need to re-encounter familiar stories to gain fresh perspectives. Oftentimes, we preserve stories in amber, fixing their me- or carbonite for the Star Wars people out there, but we fix their meaning so that it's dependent on what we gleaned at the point in time we first encountered it. And in revisiting these stories, we can notice things we hadn't seen before or dwell on details that we didn't pick up on the first time. I found it is a really enriching experience. I think the same thing can happen with passages of scripture, especially with parables Jesus told. We treat them almost as if they're Aesop's fables, believing that they have only one interpretation, one meaning, one moral. And once we've heard the story, gotten the meaning, and learned the moral, we're good to go on that parable. But that's not quite how parables were meant to be understood. Parables were stories that were intentionally meant to surprise, to shock. And so this morning, I want us to look at three parables that Jesus told in succession. Because they're some of the more familiar parables we have, and they're so familiar that they kind of lost their surprise along the way. Jesus told them in succession, but oftentimes we read them one at a time, never seeing what's happening when they're taken together. And I think Jesus, since he said them all in one sermon, meant for us to take them together. All three parables deal with lost things becoming found. And as we go through, there's an interplay between the parables, and they wind up interpreting each other. And I hope this morning, as we go through, we can discover not just something strange and new within each story, but through seeing how strange these stories are, discover how awesome our God is. This is in Luke 15. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. I'm going to break in here real quick to note that the context of these stories is an encounter Jesus had with his frenemies, the Pharisees. Frenemies is a mashup of two words, friend and enemy, and it's, no, 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 just stop, okay. They saw that Jesus was eating with sinners, eating with people that good church people don't eat with. Jesus was hanging around with those people. You know what those means. The rough crowd, the degenerates. And the Pharisees and scribes didn't like it, because holy people don't hang out with unholy people, right? Church people don't hang out with folks who have made mistakes who aren't righteous, correct? We can't bear to risk our own holiness, our own justification, our own salvation by intermingling with the likes of sinners and atheists and barflies. So it's within this context that we get these stories, these parables. Jesus said, which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is the parable of the lost sheep. It's a parable that has inspired a lot of artwork over the centuries. I have a figure of Jesus carrying a sheep over his shoulder because this is how this parable is commonly interpreted. The shepherd is Jesus, and we are the lost sheep that Jesus goes to rescue. And that is 100% accurate. Jesus did come to save us. He came to save the lost, and that was why he was eating with sinners. Because holy people don't need a Messiah. Only the unholy people are the ones in need of saving. But let's really focus in how this parable begins. He asked the Pharisees, which one of you having 100 sheep and losing one wouldn't leave the 99 to go off in search of the one? And here's the deal. The Pharisees probably have as much knowledge of proper shepherding as you and I do. But the people in the crowd, the people following Jesus, they were peasants. And they knew exactly what good shepherds do and here's the answer to Jesus question no one not one not one person having 100 sheep would leave, one, leave the 99 to go after the one and it's not because they're callous or don't value the life of one sheep it's precisely because sheep are dumb dumbs sheep are so dumb I cannot stress to you how dumb sheep are and here's the thing, if you leave the 99 to go after the 1, once you found the 1 and walk back to where you'd left the herd, this is what you would find. Another 58 sheep had gone wandering off missing somewhere because they're dumb, they're sheep, that's what they do. So every shepherd, every good shepherd at least, would not dream of leaving the herd to go in search of one lost sheep. Because you're going to wind up with more lost sheep if you do that. And the 99 are more valuable than the one. For a shepherd to leave the 99 and go after the one, it's not just scandalous, it's moronic. Jesus puts a coda to this parable saying, There's greater rejoicing in heaven when sinners repent, when one sinner repents. Keep this in mind, it's about to become an overarching theme. We're going to move on to the next parable. But for now, what's lingering in the mind of the original hearers and what I want lingering in your mind is confusion. What is Jesus talking about? No one in their right mind would leave the 99 to go search for the one. And then Jesus continues. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus presents these two stories, these two uh, situations, like they're the same, but they're really quite different. No shepherd would leave the 99 for the one, but a woman looking for a coin, that's a whole other thing entirely. Here's what we need to understand about this parable. This woman in question was very likely not a wealthy woman. Rather, she was very likely a peasant. And the 10 silver coins could likely represent one of two things. The first is a dowry. Peasant women would have had 10 coins that they wore on a headdress or some sort of ornamentation that would be the dowry for anyone who would marry them. The other possibility are that these silver coins are 10 days wages saved up for which a peasant family would be the family's life savings. In either case, we're not talking about somebody losing a penny in a couch. Instead, this coin likely represents 10% of hers or her family's net worth. Now think about that for a minute. Imagine having a retirement account or a money market account that had 10% of your net worth in it and losing the account information. In this hypothetical, you need a PIN number to access that money and you can't find it, you can't remember it, and without it, that money is gone. You would absolutely tear your house up and down looking for the McDonald's receipt you wrote the PIN number on. All the while saying, why did I write this on a McDonald's receipt? Or, imagine you're the executor of a, over a parent's estate and there's one life insurance policy whose account info you were given but you'd lost. You would search and search and search and be on hold with people and on hold with people and on hold with people till you'd memorize the entire Muzak catalog until you got that account info. Am I right? So in this case, everyone would absolutely search for the thing that was lost. It's a no-brainer. But Jesus doesn't stop with the woman would search. He says that upon finding the coin, the woman would throw a party. And she would invite everyone she knew over and tell them to celebrate with her. And we read this and we're like, sure. If I find 20 bucks in a pair of pants that I washed, I'd absolutely tell a friend to come and celebrate with me that I'd found some money. But that's not equivalent to finding this coin. Go back to imagining losing the pin number to the money market account, or whatever best fit your uh, frame of reference. And searching and searching and searching. Upon finding the thing that gives you access to 10% of your net worth, are you calling up all your friends to tell them the story? Some of you might, but here's another interpretation of the event I'd like to make. One that, let's say hypothetically, I lost, it didn't happen, but I lost said PIN number and lost 10% of my wealth. What would I do upon finding that PIN number? I love my wife very much and she is wonderful. And if I told her, isn't it great, I found this PIN number that has 10% of our net worth, would she celebrate with me? (laughs) Or would she say you shouldn't have lost it in the first place? I'm not sure this woman throws a party. Because in order to throw the party to celebrate the coin that had been found, she'd first have to admit to friends and family, that she, to neighbors and strangers, that she lost the coin to begin with. And if I find that pin number, that's what I want to avoid, having to admit that I lost it to begin with. And I just wonder how readily she would be to admit that she just up and lost 10% of her net worth. How many people would you admit something like that to? How many people would you be willing to be that vulnerable with? Because here's what I would feel. Shame. Embarrassment. And as someone who works really hard to prove to you that I have it all together, I don't want to let you in so you can see that I don't. So I ain't going to tell you that I lost 10% of my net worth because I couldn't, find a, couldn't remember a PIN number because I don't want you knowing how much of a mess I am. And when I find that coin or that pin number or that account info, I'm not feeling joy. I'm feeling relief. I'll celebrate. I'll celebrate the fact that I don't have to bear my shame and embarrassment in front of others, but joy and relief aren't the same. So I wouldn't throw a party. I wouldn't throw a party because my celebration is as much about not having to admit what happened to others as it is about finding the thing that was lost. So, if I'm celebrating not having to bear my shame in front of other people, I'm not going to bear my shame in front of other people by inviting them to this party. So, people listening to Jesus tell this story are thinking, I mean, yes, this woman would search and search and search until she found the coin, but she's not throwing a party. But then we get this final parable. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between the two sons. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out, one of the citizens... uh, To one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands." For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf.
1: Because he has got him
0: back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him? Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours but we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. So here we have a story about a child being lost and the child ultimately comes back to the father and the father throws a party. The older son who never gets lost rejects the notion of a party being thrown for his wayward brother. There's a ton more in this story but we're gonna look from this at a balcony view rather than on the dance floor. But reviewing where we are, in the first one, in the first parable Jesus told about a lost sheep, we'd react by saying, no, Jesus, we wouldn't leave the 99 to search for the one. In the second story, we'd react by saying, sure, we'd search all day and night for the coin, but we wouldn't throw a party. And in this one, Jesus flips it around to say, if your child came home, what would you do? And for all of us, we'd say, if our child left us, we'd spend every day on that hill, waiting for the first glimpse of him coming back. And when he did, we'd go to great expense to have a party. We'd tell everyone in our contacts list, we'd announce it on Facebook, we'd shout it from our front yard. Our kid is home, let's party. So what's the difference? Well, the difference between the father and this woman is partially this. When the younger son left, everyone would have known. It would have been a town scandal. When the woman lost her coin, that's a private matter. When the younger son took his inheritance and left, that's public. It's known, it's out there. The woman wouldn't throw the party because she doesn't want people to know her shame. With the father, everyone already knows his shame. And so he can invite them into his celebration free of stigma. When we read these in succession, we can see that Jesus is building to a point. A shepherd wouldn't leave 99 sheep to go and search for the one because the value of the one is far less than the 99. But when that value rises and the risk lowers, when a woman is searching for 10% of her net worth and has no risk of losing the other 90%, she'll totally search for what's lost. But likely, she won't celebrate publicly when it's found because she won't want to risk the shame. But when it's our kid, when it's our child of infinite value, And whose disobedience has already brought shame upon us. We will wait and hope and never give up, and when he returns, we're gonna party like it's 1999. When the millennium happens, we all thought that we would celebrate really, really a lot in 1999 because we weren't sure if we'd see the year 2000, so that's a phrase that talks about like partying like there's no tomorrow. When the millennium hit, So all of this is predicated on the notion of what joy there is in heaven when a sinner repents. And if we've built all the way up to the lost thing being a father's son, it tells us that if it's possible to each of us are more valuable to God than a child is to the child's parent. And when that repentance occurs, there's one amazing party in heaven. But before we leave these behind totally, I want to throw one more interpretive lens on the story of the prodigal, the story of the lost son. Thus far we have viewed the story from the perspective of the father. What if, now imagine you were the best friend of the older brother. Imagine getting a call from a friend who has been put through the ringer by his younger brother. The younger brother took half the family money and up and left. And ever since, your friend's dad has been distraught. His dad can't stop talking about how much, he misses his bro- how much he misses the father's son, your friend's brother. His father cries every night. He can't get over it. And your friend spends every day working for his father, and his father can't stop going on and on about the kid that isn't there, never celebrating the one that is, never appreciating your friend, just bemoaning the other son's departure. So your friend calls you up and tells you his brother finally came home. And now the father wants to throw a party for the son that dipped out and now came back crawling home tail between his legs. Never once did your friend get a party. He's the good son and can't get a thank you, let alone a party. The bad son comes home and now it's let's bust out the bubbly. If you were the older son's friend, would you be happy about this? No. No, you'd commiserate with him. You'd say, that's awful. Frankly, you'd say other things, but y'all probably wouldn't like it if I said those things in church. And here's where it circles back to where we started. The Pharisees being angry about Jesus chilling with sinners. And the question becomes, what's your priority? Where are you in this story? Are you standing up for the righteous? Or are you hoping, are you desiring to see people's lives transformed? On some level, it should be obvious We should be about life transformation. It sounds more dynamic. But who are the people that need transformation? Not those that have it all together. The Pharisees were about the holy, they were about the righteous, they were about the people who seemingly did have it together. They were the friend of the older brother. They talk about how terrible it was that a party was happening for the wayward kid. Jesus was about seeing transformation. So he was with the younger brother. He's with the younger brother in his moment of need, and he's at the party for the younger brother in his moment of celebration. Where are you? What is your priority? Where are you in these stories? By now, most of y'all know the drill. We're going to break into groups to process this. If you want to talk about it in a small group discussion, we have some small group questions uh, that you can turn chairs into an amoeba-like formation over here. Um, we have a group project in the back for people who want to do the, the extrovert thing but also want to be a little bit more tactile with their hands. We're going to have a group that prays through this um, series of texts over here. And in the back there's a table with journals uh, if you want to uh, process this with a pen and paper. Um, We're gonna throw up a timer for seven minutes, which some of you are thinking that's way too long and some of you are thinking that's way too short and some of you might be thinking that's shorter than we've been usually doing, Um, but we've got a few more things to do today, a few more surprises in store. So um, seven minutes on the timer and disperse.